was 1999. Brooke and I were preparing to graduate from college in Abilene, Texas, Hardin-Simmons University. Um, and I was looking for a seminary to attend. And I had, had uh, looked at a few different seminaries and places to go to school. But uh, one of those was the Master Seminary out in Southern California. Um, this was before there was uh, anything really on the Internet or much to the Internet. And so uh, I had to, you know, call on a telephone and uh, out there, and they sent me, you know, printed materials to look at, promotional materials, and those things waited in the mail and looked through all that stuff. There were, there were there was no Google Maps yet. There were no satellite imagery to look at or uh, street views to see kind of where the school was and uh, or, or how it was located, so you just had to pull out a, find a paper map, you know, a, a big atlas of California, you know, and see, okay, well, there it is. It's in that area. It's in that town. And so it's just, just kind of general idea of where the school was. But in the promotional materials, the, had, a, had photos of the, the church and school campus that shared a campus with the church, and it was beautiful. They had palm trees and flowers in bloom and grass and these little courtyards and it just looked it looked so pretty and it really was a, a very pretty campus but going off those photos my perception was that that the school the church was like overlooking the pacific ocean or something uh you know near the beach and and probably was you know along this uh palm tree line you know broad street kind of like what i've seen in television and movies you know beverly hills kind of uh imagery that's what i envisioned from the photos that were in the in the in the promotional materials and then we went out and visited <laughs> and let's just say my perception was very different from reality and some of you have been out there know this the campus sits right in the heart of the san fernando valley which meant nothing to me until till i had been out there uh, but it's it's it, that valley is just miles and miles of sprawling congestion uh, it is, it is, it is, was mostly built back in the 60s and 70s, probably 50s, 60s, 70s. And so you kind of have these tired shopping centers just lining the streets and houses and apartments just crammed in there together, just dense, clogged streets. And so the photos, they built up this perception that was, was very different uh, from reality. Isn't that often how it is in other things in life too, though? I mean, we, we find this to be pretty normal. There's, there, the, the, things aren't quite as exciting and, and interesting and large and beautiful as we expect them to be. They, they, there's often a kind of a letdown factor when we have those perceived expectations. And so occasionally, though, it's the exact opposite. Sometimes we, we aren't expecting much, but the reality far surpasses our perception of the way things are going to be, our, our expectations. And so, so it is with the incarnation of Jesus. And, and so we're, we're starting this Advent series, Into the Dark. And, and, and so with Christ's birth, it's as if heaven came down and invaded earth. The, the, the light of God, Christ, the, this light burst forth into the darkness of this fallen, cursed earth this world and God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us that's what really happened that's that's reality but if you were living at that time your perception of this reality would be very different you probably wouldn't have noticed that anything even happened if you were living then I mean the events of 
the incarnation, we're very local and we're mostly subtle and, and, and concealed from people at the time. And so it was from a human perspective, small and simple and, and insignificant and unnoticed and inconsequential. That's, that's, that's how it was perceived. Christ's birth is kind of like a, like a raindrop falling in the ocean. Like a, who cares? So what? A, a, another baby born into poverty. That's, that's all it was from a human perspective. But, but that perception, it doesn't match reality. This was far more interesting, exciting, large, beautiful, history-changing than anybody at that time realized. The, the his, this was the turning point, the focal point of, of human history. And so this year at, for Advent, we're going to be looking at, at John 1 together. And so the, the Advent, as we, we talk about that, you may have different concepts in your mind of what that involves. Maybe you just picture the, you know, the Advent calendar. We had one of those when I was growing up. Basically, it meant I get to eat a candy cane every day, and it was like a countdown to opening presents on Christmas Day. That's what I thought of Advent. Maybe you have better theologically informed understandings of Advent than I do from my childhood, but... But Advent, it just comes from the Latin word, which means coming, coming. And so the, the purpose historically of Advent season, these four weeks before Christmas and leading up to Christmas, these four Sundays in particular, as the church marks this, it's, it's, it's to anticipate the coming of Christ. It's anticipation. It's, it's, it's waiting, yearning. And, it, and, and as we read in Isaiah just a moment at the beginning of the service. It, it has this twin focus. It always has. And it looks to the first and second coming of Christ. And as we mark Advent, that's what we're doing as well. And so John is going to help us anticipate, to, to, to yearn for, and to see reality. Reality, what really took place when Christ was born. So he, John, he's, he doesn't recount the birth narrative in the way that Matthew and Luke do, and he doesn't give us all of those details of the story. He knows that John's writing later, and those of Matthew and Luke have already recorded those details for the church, and so he's taking us back to the very beginning of the Christmas story, and, and, and it's a long way before Bethlehem, and so where, where did Christmas begin? Where does it begin? It begins with God. It begins with God. Christmas doesn't begin in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem is simply where, where God's story intersects our story. And so Philip Brooks said it well in a, in a Christmas hymn that we know and sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He said, there's that line, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What's that communicating? I mean, traditionally, the, the first, if you, if you light Advent candles, as many churches do, we don't do that here but the the first advent candle it represents hope hope this is what we're seeing oh come oh come emmanuel this this longing this hope this expectation this anticipation and so and where there's hope there's the backside of hope which is what fear and so so our hopes and our fears about life and about death they're met by god in the manger in bethlehem that's what that song is communicating god comes to us in Christ and, and meets us there. But again, the story began long before that night. And so Christmas doesn't begin in Bethlehem, or we could say Christ, Christ didn't begin at, at Christmas. So in John chapter 1, 
John, under the Spirit's inspiration, he, he takes us back to the real roots of Christmas. The story begins before the incarnation. In fact, we're going to see the story begins before creation itself. And, that, and that's where John goes. And so before we talk next Sunday, uh, uh, Pastor Flintoff's going to be preaching next Sunday from verses 3 and 4, and bef- or 3 to 5. And so before he, he, he goes there about this life-giving light breaking into the darkness of this world at the incarnation, we're, we're going to see Christ before Christmas today, these opening verses. So all, all, I, all I want, all I've been praying for this week and anticipating uh, this passage is just for the next few minutes that our minds will just be blown by Christ. Um, that's what John is really doing here in this opening prologue. He just wants our minds to explode with the thoughts of the glories of Jesus Christ. And I pray that he'll do that. And I mean, in addition to the hand sanitizer stations when you walked into this building today, we probably should have had like Advil dispensers out there. Because I hope that your head starts hurting as you begin to think about and meditating upon and these, these glorious truths of Christ long before Christmas, but anticipating why and who he is and why he came. And so the, the opening prologue of John is really like the whole of the Gospel of John. It, it fits in that vein. And so uh, John, we've talked about this before when we preached through the Gospel of John a few years ago. John's, John's simple enough for a small child to understand and, and what's here. And so this is often when kids memorizing Bible verses, one of the places we go to, some of the first verses uh, children who grow up in churches memorize, usually the Gospel of John, and that's, there's good reason for that. It's where uh, if you're discipling a, a new believer or if you're talking with someone who's an interested unbeliever, we often, where do we go? We go to the Gospel of John. This is a great place to begin because we can... You can understand it. It's, it's accessible in that way. So it's, it's simple in that way, but it's also incredibly deep and profound, and, and it can be studied and studied and studied, and its riches will never, ever be exhausted. And so it, it, it does both. The, the quote that we talked about when we were in, in John together, it John's, it's a pool safe enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. And that's the Gospel of John. And so in that light, these, these opening verses here, they are, they are representative of the whole. And they, they fit that vein. And so you can think about verses 1 to 3, your entire life. You can think about them for all eternity. And, and you, will, you will not reach the limits of their weight and of their glory. No way. But you can also read... And maybe if, if you just came in today, you were invited here, you just walked in, and you're hearing these words for the very first time, you can also understand them and get them. That's the beauty of this. And so let's again, let's let our minds be blown a little bit this morning. And, and, and today we're just going to simply look at, at the Christ child before Christmas. More specifically, before creation, and then at creation. That's what where John starts in verses 1 to 3. And so let's see, let's see the light before he broke into the, into, this, into the dark at the incarnation. Let's see the light before the words were even spoken, let there be light. Let's see him. All right, so first, Christ before creation. So John comes right out of the gate with this spectacular statement. Verse 1, again, let's read it together or just follow along. In the beginning 
was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, who's this Word? We, we, we know he's, it's Jesus. That's who John's talking about here. John doesn't mention his name, we'll see, until verse 17. But it's crystal clear who he's talking about. And verse 14 in particular makes this very clear, makes it obvious. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so clearly he's, he's speaking of Jesus. But why doesn't he just say, uh, in the beginning was Jesus? And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Why does he, why does he say the Word? Well, that's significant. And so for the original readers of this gospel account the, in, in the first century A.D., his title would have resonated deeply with, with both Jews and Gentiles alike. This, this word, the word. And so John's writing to this mixed audience. And so to Jewish readers, that, that the word is connected with creation, with, with revelation, and with redemption. And so God created all things uh, by the Word of God. Scripture bears that out. He spoke all things into existence. So creation. Also, revelation. He revealed Himself through His Word, through the Scriptures. And then also, redemption. God redeemed His people through His Word. He called them by name. He drew them out by speaking. And so, so all of this, it, it, it speaks, it resonates with those Jewish readers, but also to non-Jewish readers, the, the word resonated very deeply with them. And so the Greeks believed there was no, there was no God, but, there was, but, but they, they believed in this concept of logos, of word, or reason. The, the logos, or reason, is this rational principle by which everything existed. And, and so that there's no personal God, personal deity, but there's this impersonal reason. And this logos is the cause of everything that exists. And so what John does is he hijacks that word, word and, and, he, and he just blows everybody's minds by connecting that to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word. And notice, it, Jesus doesn't become the Word in the Incarnation. No, the eternal living Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as we're going to see in the Incarnation. That's what's happening. So Jesus has always been, will always be the Word of God. It has always been part of Jesus' identity to create and to, to reveal God and to redeem that's always been true. And so as the Word, Jesus shows us what the invisible God is like. I mean, you can't, you can't know my thoughts and I can't know your thoughts unless you speak, unless you use words, write words. Tell me. I mean, we, sometimes, you know, a spouse can, uh, Brooke can know some things that I'm thinking. She can have kind of general ideas about things and she's, you know, we've been together long enough. She can, I know what you're thinking right now. And she's often right, at least in general ways. And my kids can kind of do that, and some close friends. But, 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 but we can't really know what another person is thinking unless they tell us. And so God is spirit. Therefore, his, he's invisible to our, to our finite senses. We can't see him or touch him or smell him or anything like that. No, 
We cannot know God by those means because, as 1 Timothy 6.16 says, He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen Him nor can see Him. John 1.18, we'll look at this in a few weeks. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. But He, the Word, has made Him known. That's what Jesus is doing. He's the Word of God. He's making known, making visible the invisible God. Jesus Himself said in, in John 14, 9, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. It's the Word. All right, so we got that. So now what does John tell us about this Word that's existed before creation? So first thing that we see is, is this, the Word's mind-blowing eternality. His eternality. Notice the first phrase. In the beginning was the Word. You know, in the beginning. That, hmm, that sort of rings a bell. Where does that take us back to? To the beginning of the Bible, right? I mean, it's Genesis 1-1, the very first phrase in Scripture, the very first verse of the Bible. He's taking us all the way back to Genesis 1-1, when God created the heavens and the earth. And, and, and so there's, that's, that's not when Jesus began. That's not what John's saying. He wasn't created then in the beginning. No, John's saying that at the beginning of the universe, the, the Word already was. He was in the beginning. When creation was made, Jesus was already in existence. There's, there was never a time when the Word did not exist. He, he simply was. Now, I don't want to get too technical here, but in the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, there. The, the tense of this verb here, it's, it's an imperfect uh, tense, an imperfect verb. It just means that he, he, he was being, or we could say he was continuing to be. And it communicates this continuity, this always sitting. So the word, this sounds very clunky, but the word always was, wasing. The, er, the word always was continuing to be in the beginning. And so you can, you could just think, Farther, I know some of us, we can hardly remember what we had for, you know, lunch yesterday. It was leftovers. I'll tell you what you had for lunch yesterday. But, you know, if you could, we, can, we, we have trouble remembering things, but if you could just mentally imagine you're thinking back farther and farther and farther in time and farther and farther until, until time just disappears over the horizon. As far back as we could possibly imagine, and then infinitely beyond that, what do we find? Jesus was. He was. Colossians 1.17 just simply says, He is before all things. In the beginning, Jesus was. The Word was. So if the Word already was in the beginning, if the Word was, wasing in the beginning, then He must either have been with God, who is eternal, or He must be God. Well, John actually teaches that both of those are true of Jesus without contradiction. That's the next phrase. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, that brings us to the second incredible thing we see of Jesus here, of this Word. The Word's incomparable company. Incomparable company. The Word was with God. Now, this is a very subtle but powerful and weighty statement here. That, that little preposition with is what the phrase turns on here. The word 
was the word Jesus. He was, he was with God. That means, among many things, that Christ has his own unique, separate personality from the Father. He has full, full personhood. He is a full person in and of himself. And so the word is not just some impersonal idea or philosophy. It's not just, you know, reason as the Greeks thought. No, but he is, a, he is an actual person. The word is a hymn. Now I know, again, this is where our heads start to hurt a little bit. And, you, you know, maybe you need to take a couple more Tylenol here. And, and so we can keep moving. But, but we, see, we see this diversity of our one true God. I mean, this is, this is the Trinity. This is Christianity 101, and it's also Christianity 10,001. I mean, this is the most basic thing that we could say about, about Orthodox Christianity, and it's, the, it's something that we can never possibly fully comprehend as Christians and probably won't for all eternity. And so... This our, our one God who eternally exists in, in three distinct persons. Each person's fully God, and yet there aren't three gods. There is there's one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. So this little preposition with, it's communicating that. It, it's, it's communicating the distinct personality of Christ. But it commu- communicates much more than that, too. It's also communicating nearness, closeness, intimacy. The little preposition with. It, it, it means with or, 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 or before, face to face. Those are all ways in which this preposition could be translated towards. It's, it's not just with God in, in, in this sense of being generally, vaguely in the same kind of area as God. No, that the Word has always existed in this closest possible connection with God, with the Father. Face to face. There has always existed the deepest equality and intimacy between the Father and the Son, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was always in eternal, continual perfect, joyous, intimate closeness with the Father and the Spirit. That's, that's, this is saying that. This is incredible. And so, which means that God didn't create the world. He didn't make you and me because He was lonely or bored or unfulfilled. It wasn't because He lacked anything. God knows nothing of the sort. John 17, Jesus will say that he enjoys, he's enjoyed forever this perfect delight in and satisfaction with the Father before the world ever existed. He's eternally known that. And that that makes his creation of us, brothers and sisters, that makes his redemption of us when we rejected him and rebelled against him and and, 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 and cause the world to be plunged into a curse because of our sin, that makes His love for us all the more remarkable, doesn't it? What, what love, what grace that the Word who was with God, enjoying this incomparable uh, community and relationship and company for all eternity, would, would create us, and then when we rebelled, would redeem us. Not write us off. 
Let me just give you another implication of this, this incredible truth. It's this. is we who are in Christ by faith, we've trusted in Jesus, we are brought into this glorious Trinitarian reality. And I don't mean by that that we are now, you know, part of the Trinity and we're little gods or something like that. Not at all. We're not part of the Godhead, but we have this close, intimate fellowship with the Godhead because of Christ. We, too, are with God. We live life before the face of God in Jesus Christ. That's incredible. That's incredible. Third, third thing we see of Jesus here is, and of this word, is we see the word's intrinsic deity. So, the, so in the beginning, is the word, his eternality. The word was with God. We see his, his company. And the word was God, his deity. He was constantly, continually, same tense, God. Leon Morris, commentator, and John here, he says, nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may rightly be said about the Word. The statement should not be watered down. John is not merely saying that there is something divine about Jesus. He is affirming that He is God. And so Jesus was and is in every way, even though He's separate from the person of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, He is God. And the way John words this perfectly preserves Jesus' separate personhood and also emphatically states that he's fully God. And so there, there are some, um, we probably encounter this occasionally, maybe often, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, who, who, who claim, they come and, and they say, with their, they, say they, they, they will say the Greek text that the Bible from which the Bible is translated it, it, it should be translated, the, the word was a God. You've heard this argument. This is one of the frequent ones that comes up, at least when, they've, when, they, when I talk with them. Because there's no, there's no definite article in the Greek here. There's no the before God in the Greek. So they'll say Jesus, they'll say things like Jesus is divine. He's a God or he's, he's God-like, but he's not actually deity. He's not the God. That's not supported by the, the New Testament manuscripts. Now, that's, that's not a new heresy. I mean, this, is, this goes way back into the 4th century, and Arius was the first one who really made this popular. And there was a, this was a big deal in the early church. We had the Council of Nicaea. Many of you have heard of that. And, and this is what this was about, was this very question. And, and so this is, this is old. But how do you respond when those challenges when those questions come up, when they're raised, when, you, when they come through your neighborhood, they knock on your door, and they're quoting you know, the Greek text in this seemingly informed way, what do, you, what do you respond? How do you respond to that? Well, let me just give you a, a few ways to respond. A little apologetics right here. First, context. Context. It is clear throughout this gospel account that John intends for us to identify Jesus as God. That is unmistakable. That the deity of Jesus Christ does not hang on John 1 1. Uh, not at all. G, uh, the, the John 5 18, the Jews sought to kill Jesus because he was, he was making himself equal to God. 
And, and when they do that, Jesus doesn't respond by correcting them and saying, whoa, 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 I didn't mean, I didn't mean I was God, a big G God. No, I was just God-like, one of the gods. No, no, not it at all. What does he say? Instead, he comes right back and he claims in that same chapter, a few verses later, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll raise you. This is this bold claim to deity that Jesus makes there. So you can't say that at the climax of John's gospel, in many, many places, and just in John alone that we see the deity of Christ affirmed. But at the climax of the whole gospel account, Thomas sees the risen Christ, and, and he proclaims, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't, like, tamp that down and say, whoa, 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 well, Maybe, maybe there's a better way to say that that kind of mutes that a little bit. No, he, he affirms Thomas's confession. This is the great crescendo in the whole gospel account. And so context, you, just, you can't make this argument in the, in the context of John. Second, vocabulary. Now, I, I, you, you, would, you, you can't know this without knowing the language here, but if, if John meant that Jesus was God-like, there was another word to use for that. There was a Greek word that he could, have, he could have used instead, but he doesn't use that word. He uses the word for God. This is, this is acceptable. So the word he used means God, not God-like. Third, grammar. Everybody's favorite subject in school, I know. I have a couple kids who actually really like grammar. They're weird. No. Um, but this, this is the normal Greek construction that would be used to say the word was God. This is how you would say it. If that's what John's wanting to say, this is how he would say it. And so if John had used the, the definite article before God, it would have equated the word totally with God. In a sense, that it would negate that distinction that he's just made, saying that the word was with God. And so it would, it would not have allowed the Father to be God and the Holy Spirit to be God, which would be a, a whole other serious heresy that we find present even today. But John's point is to identify the word as God, fully God, but also as distinct from God the Father. That's what he's doing here. And so, let me just, let me just give you some another little glimpse into the, the, the wonders of what Scripture tells us here of, of, of Jesus and his, and his full, full deity. This is years later on the Isle of Patmos, uh, John has this vision of the, of the risen Lord and, and in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, and he, and he has this vision and he falls down like a dead man. And Jesus, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, he speaks to him and he says, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, remember that, and then think centuries before, in Isaiah chapter 44, this is Isaiah prophesying, again, centuries before Christ makes this proclamation of himself, Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, besides me there is no God. So, when you, in light of Isaiah, in light of what Isaiah said, clearly Jesus is, is, is claiming to be the Lord of hosts, the one, the only true God. 
There's no way we can get around that. So everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. All of God's attributes are Jesus' attributes. Holiness, sovereignty, wisdom, justice, glory, power, goodness, wrath, love, truth. Martin Luther, great Protestant reformer, he said, this text is a strong and valid attestation of the divinity of Christ. Everything depends on this doctrine. It serves to maintain and support all other doctrines of the Christian faith. Therefore, the devil assailed it very early in the history of Christianity, and he continues to do so in our own day. And that was true in the 15th century, 16th century. It's true in our own day as well. One other quote, and then we'll, we'll move on and close. Uh, C.K. Barrett, another commentator on John, he says, John intends that the whole of his gospel should be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and the words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. So this is not peripheral, uh, a tangent. This isn't the pastor just kind of in a philosophical soapbox here. This is critical. This is core Christianity here. And, and it's, it's constantly being assaulted. So we've got to get our minds around this. And not just for the sake that we can argue with other people, but so that we can revel in the fact of the glories of Jesus Christ, this one who is, who is the light, who is to come and gives life to us. All right. So Christ before creation. And then quickly, and this will be quick. Christ at creation. So he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John simply affirming that, that Jesus was the agent of creation. You have all three persons of the Trinity involved in creation. You have the Father who's planning the work, you, who, who planned the work of creation. You have God the Son who, who did the work. You have the, God the Spirit who energized that work. And so, but we could say here as he's talking about Christ, the Word that everything in the universe, visible and visible in, and invisible, it owes its existence to Jesus. And, and the Bible leaves no doubt here. Jesus' creatorship is the consistent witness of the New Testament. Just listen to a few verses here, and, and you don't have time to turn there, but just listen. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Everything that was made was made by Christ. I mean, there are, uh, scientists say, there are, there are at least 100 million galaxies in, our, in known space. 100 million galaxies. Now, our solar system is part of the Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy, relatively small galaxy. And so they estimate that there are something like 10 octillion stars in space. 
That's 10 with 27 zeros after it. So just think of the magnitude of the created, the created universe. And Jesus, he made it all. He made it all. Just try and grasp the, the vastness of Jesus' power. We can't possibly do that. But just keep expanding until your mind explodes and thinking about that. In all of this divine power, this power to create everything that is out of nothing and all of its complexity, whether you look far and wide into the distances of, of outer space or you look you know, small under a microscope at the, at the very fine detail of, a, of cellular structure and those kinds of things, whether, whether that he has the power to create all of this out of nothing and yet he's clothed in weakness in the incarnation. The glorious Son of God was a small needy baby. Why? So that he could grow up to be a suffering servant who would die as a seemingly helpless victim in our place. So, so we go back to where we began. What's your perception of Christmas? Is it, is it in line with reality? Is your perception of Jesus' birth in line with reality? We, we tend to think too small about Christmas. We see, we see the events, we see the characters, you know, the innkeeper and the donkey and, the, and, and these little, little, little details in the stories. And, and the details matter and the events are real and the people are real. But, the, but we, we can sort of allegorize them and kind of create uh, a moral story out of, out of these events. And that's not the intention... Think about what the Christmas story is really saying. That's what I want us to do this year. God the Son, the Word, the eternal Word, He became human. He took on human flesh and, and dwelt among us. He, he became one of us. And all of that, all that Jesus had to show us, all that He, he told us, all that He would do for us, he, he, as the eternal Word of God, He did in this one life. And this one single incarnation. I mean, you think, for all eternity, everything's been leading to this. And for thousands of years, God had been preparing, for, preparing us for this visit. Creating, caring, prophesying, uh, revealing, protecting, warning, pointing, giving us everything we know we needed to know in order to understand this divine visitation. And here's the irony. With the incredible beauty of this divine plan, and with all of the preparation of a people to understand God's visit and all that it would mean for the world, Jesus came to his own, as we're going to see, and his own didn't receive him. We rejected him. We killed him. We crucified him. The, the child who was born in Bethlehem. And so as surely as Herod slaughtered the children out of fear of losing his kingdom, we crucified Jesus because we didn't want to give up our little kingdoms. But the real irony is even greater because the gospel tells us that his death is exactly the thing we needed most. It's exactly what bridged the chasm that, that restored our fellowship with God. When, when Jesus lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose from the dead, He, he repaired, He remade, he, he redeemed what was lost. He, he rescued us 
He redeemed us. He, he began the renewal of all creation. He, he reversed the curse by becoming a curse for us. And so His death is the door through which we walk into a whole new world. A world without sin, a world without its awful effects. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. A world of eternal joy. And what is the beginning? What's the beginning of the Christmas story? It's God. It's God. It's a personal God, a, a God who reveals himself, a, a God who within himself is love and is light, a God who made us and loves us even though we don't love him. A God who came into our world as this tiny child in Bethlehem. The Word. Now in worldly terms, again, Jesus, it doesn't look like he accomplished anything. Christ didn't come, though, to build a financial empire or a military empire or make a name for himself politically. No, he didn't come to leave his mark on the annals of worldly fame and glory. He came to show the way to God that he would open for us through his death on the cross for our sins. The hopes of all, the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Bethlehem. That night as God stepped into the story that he was writing and he made his story our story. That's the beginning of Christmas. It all began long, long, long ago when God loved you in Jesus and sent his son for you. This is what the, the greatest verse in John, perhaps in the Bible, says, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And what's the response? What should our response be to all of this? What does he ask of us? To believe. To trust in Christ. To, to be, and that's how we become part of the family that God's creating in, uh, in and through his son, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, John tells us at the end of this whole book why he wrote the book, the pur whole purpose of it, that, that, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not Obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I would say that if you are here today and you're without Christ and your trust is not in him, will you trust him? Will you believe that he died and rose for you? And, and will you receive this eternal life as a gift? And if you are a believer, a Christian, this is not just a message that the lost need. This is a message we need to hear all the time. We are, we are those who walk by faith in Christ. So our whole life is characterized by faith. The, the, every Lord's Day, every day, Scripture says, we're to be pointing one another back to Jesus to grow in our trust and confidence in Him. That's why we're here today. Eternal, abundant life is ours as we, as we continue to trust in Him. And so we see, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the light 
of Christ shining into our hearts and, and revealing to us the glories of Jesus Christ. You've revealed them in your word. You've, you've made that effectual by your spirit and for those of us who've trusted in Christ and, and opened our eyes to see the wonders of Jesus. I pray that you'll continue to do that over the next few weeks as we as we marvel at Christ together and marvel at this light that's shined into the darkness of this world and this life and gives life to us, Father. May our embrace and enjoyment of <coughs> and satisfaction in the life that we have through faith in Christ just grow and grow and grow over these next days and weeks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.